This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Will Johnson. The show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. On all of the unidentified remains, um, the state of the body really makes it difficult to determine um, cause of death, manner of death. And so on a lot of these cases, they're going to be remain undetermined. Every person we have here is somebody, somebody. And we take that to heart, and it's not just a person on the side of the road. We really do care and want to get those answers for them, and we speak for the decedents here. On June 1st of 2020, a body was spotted in the Mississippi River. The remains of an unknown male were recovered from the Mississippi River in the city of St. Louis. First responders were called to the foot of Arsenal and 2nd Street after a vessel spotted what they believed to be human remains. And with the assistance of first responders, these unknown remains were um, removed from the river and brought to the medical examiner's office. This was in the evening hours. This individual had no forms of personal identification on him. Tara Rick is Executive Director of Operations at the St. Louis City Medical Examiner's Office. She's been working there for 24 years now. She says, as with most unidentified bodies brought into the morgue, they first attempted to get fingerprints from the remains. Our typical process, our our first line is, is fingerprinting someone. But sometimes due to the condition of remains, individuals can't be fingerprints. That cannot be fingerprinted. That option is no longer available. So we would be doing a dental consultation. We would have an anthropologist look at the remains to do, put together a profile. Um, We would do x-rays to see if that person has possibly any type of uh, record of broken bones, implantable devices, those types of things. So we collect all of that information, but if we don't have a tentative identification, a lead, a name to go off of, it makes it impossible for us at that point to begin the process of collecting dental, x-ray, DNA, or other records that are useful to us for comparing and identifying or excluding an individual. But due to the state of the remains, they were unable to identify the body using fingerprints or any of the other usual methods. We've run the gamut on everything. So we've we've had our specialist look at everything. So he's had an anthropological consult, he's had a dental consult. Fingerprints are not possible. But there are other identifying characteristics that could help Tara Rick and her team identify the remains and possibly contact family members. This person was noted to have memorial tattoos quite a few memorial tattoos, and typically those are unique, and they typically represent a loved one, a life event, a relationship in someone's life. So in this particular case, these tattoos we do feel are critical. We do feel if the right person sees these tattoos and can contact our office, we can go down that road, hopefully, towards a a positive ID. The tattoos are on the right arm, a faded pink bow and the word Zachary, along with a date, 4-11-12. Below that, the word MAD, spelled M-A-D-D, followed by letters that are illegible. There's another date, but only portions are legible. The number five, followed by a dash and what appears to be the number 18 at the end. Then another name, but only the letters H-A are legible. And then also on the right forearm, a ribbon winds through a skull and dagger. The words, death before dishonor, written along the ribbon. And finally, also on the right forearm, the word grandpa. Perhaps these tattoos with partial dates and names could be the clue to identifying this body, to learning what happened, giving closure to someone's family. But these remains in the St. Louis City Morgue are actually one of seven bodies that are unidentified. 
Christine Byers is a crime reporter at KSDK, Five on Your Side in St. Louis. I do talk to medical examiner staff quite often uh, in my line of work. And I was just talking with the medical examiner's office in St. Louis and asking them if they had any story ideas or anything going on that they wanted to bring attention to. And um, during that conversation, basically, they mentioned to me that they have an uh, unusually high number of unidentified remains at the morgue. There are the remains of seven unidentified bodies, and those they have been there since 2016. Um, there were several cases that came in last year as well. So um, for the St. Louis City Morgue, um, this is the highest number of unidentified remains that are there at any given time. Uh, that that anyone on staff has seen in recent memory. And most of the staff there have been there a good 25, 30 years. Um, And so they're very concerned about having this many unidentified remains, and they're working really hard to get them identified because they basically want answers for the family and and for for these souls that are in their care for now. Most of these remains are skeletonized, um, which is the reason why they're unidentified. The most easiest way to identify a body is by fingerprints. Well, when fingerprints are not available, that opens up a whole nother set of problems. Um, some of them were f- were pulled from the river, which means they may, the river as in the Mississippi River, um, which means they may not be from this area. Um, and so that's another challenge. Uh, some of them were found in abandoned buildings, in vacant fields, um, but they are all very significantly decomposed. Um, They have been able to at least determine gender, um, but some of them, they're really not even sure of age either. Um, So it's it's pretty difficult uh, with the state of the remains to get them identified. We've seen an increase over the past five years. Um, Most of the unknown remains that we have, several of the cases are, are individuals that have been recovered from the Mississippi. Whether they're actually people from the St. Louis area or not, that's yet to be determined. Uh, We are challenged because a lot of these people are in a state of decomposition where our traditional means of identifying someone quickly through fingerprints just isn't possible in these cases. Simply put, these cases that we have here at the city that we need the public's health help with, we cannot do fingerprints. These individuals cannot be viewed by anyone. It's strictly going to be a scientific ID process. In general, as Tara Rick pointed out in the case of the man with the tattoos, bodies are identified through a variety of methods. Some bodies are in a severe state of decomposition, but there is identifying information found near them, like a driver's license or some sort of ID uh, that is found next to them and that they're able to use as a starting point. to Because then even if they have an identification near them, the forensic scientists have to work and prove that that's the actual person. So then they have to work backwards from that identification, you know, prove it through dental records or perhaps they had a medical device, you know, uh, an artificial knee or an artificial hip, um, a pacemaker. All of those things have serial numbers on them. And so, um, you know, that will help, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. In the cases in St. Louis... um, All of those avenues have been explored and exhausted. The greatest hope that they have is DNA matches. Um, And that is a challenge as well because the medical examiner can only send off samples of tissue 
of bones, of remains, and they send them to the University of North Texas um, for DNA, DNA profiles to get developed. And that process can take over a year just to get the profile, let alone actually run that profile in different databases to see if they can get matches or associate what's known as associations to sort of family members and that sort of thing. So it's a very, very long, long process. Byers notes that dental records are often used to identify bodies, but that's not always possible. And so far, it hasn't been an option with any of the seven unidentified bodies currently at the morgue. They're only able to be used if they have a tentative ID to begin with. So in other words, obviously, you can find somebody that has pretty distinctive um, you know, dental issues going on. But if you don't have a name to go off of, you don't know where to request dental records from and of who and from where. Dental records are, are a great option and, and they are very useful. However, we have to have a lead. We have to have a name. We can't go looking for records if we don't have a name for someone to go looking for that type of record. So if someone gives us a name, we can get those records and, and the odontologist can compare that individual with the individual that we have here, and they can either make a positive ID or they can exclude that individual. Christine Byers visited the morgue and got a glimpse of where bodies, identified and unidentified, are kept. So the bodies that are kept in the main part of the morgue are basically um, homicide victims, overdose victims. Some are believed to be natural causes, but deaths that occur at home. If, let's say, you're not in hospice care, or, you know, the death is expected. Um, deaths at home are often brought to the morgue. Some deaths that occur at hospitals are brought to the morgue. Um, basically, anyone that is wanting an autopsy will be brought to the morgue. Um, and so there's the, the causes of death for the bodies that are at the morgue run the gamut. Um, certainly in the city of St. Louis, Majority of them are overdose or gunshot victim deaths that are in the main portion of the morgue. And in the St. Louis City Morgue, they don't have a drawer system. It is this sort of open refrigeration room type of area. The, the St. Louis City Morgue it, building itself, the structure itself, is very, very old. And so, um, you know, the remains are kept beh behind these giant wooden doors. And they're actually kept in a different um, part of the morgue, they they tend to come in infested sometimes, and so they need to keep them in a separate section of the separate building, separate part of the building. It's also, um, you know, kept at a certain temperature, very cold, um, to preserve what is left. They are kept in um, body bags, so to speak, so they're in, you know, contained in um, their own individual bags. Um, but they're away from public view, definitely. Um, other remains are kept in the main part of the morgue, which is basically one giant, um, very cold room. And the bo the bodies are in bags on stretchers. And so the room where the unidentified remains are kept is much smaller. Um, and it's, again, away from the main area where autopsies are performed and where the other bodies are stored. And when bodies go unidentified, they stay right there at the morgue. And the reason for that is they basically do not want to inter them in the off chance that they do get an identification and the family wants the remains and wants to have a proper burial and a funeral home come and get them because then they basically have to exhume them. So why go through that if you're holding out hope for a family that's going to claim them? 
So the unidentified remains have a specific place in the morgue where they are kept. And then there's also a place for unclaimed remains, but those remains um, are actually set to go into that sort of pauper's grave um, that the city, you know, owns a part of a cemetery where unclaimed remains go. And those are basically remains that are identified, but the families, for whatever reason, whether it be financial or otherwise, just don't have the means or desire to bury them um, in a private area. But identifying these seven bodies, identifying any bodies that are brought to the morgue, is important work, important for families of victims, and when foul play is involved, important for investigators who pick up these cases. Any homicide detective you talk to is going to tell you that basically the first real step in in a homicide investigation is identifying your victim. Without your victim being identified, it's really, really hard to start the investigation because you can look around um, all you want for crime scene evidence and, and those sorts of things. And, and you can tell that clearly you have a homicide on your hands. But if you don't have your victim identified, how can you begin to trace that person's final moments? Um, how can you find out who they were last seen with, what they were last doing? Um, all those sort of basic things that lead you to you know, identifying potentially a suspect that they were involved with. Um, so it is really crucial to get these people identified to basically start a suspicious death or homicide investigation if that's what it ends up being. Um, that's the first step is getting the identification. And whether a body is identified or not, if there's no clear indication of a cause and manner of death, the next step is a suspicious death investigation. And so basically... That is a catch-all for natural, suicide, uh, homicide, all the different causes of death you can imagine. And so they basically um, get involved, and they started off as a suspicious death investigation. And, you know, after having the identification, they can then, you know, go back in time, retrace the, this person's final moments as, as much as possible, and, and try to get an answer as to whether they think foul play was involved or not. And sometimes... It just cannot be determined. And for Tara Rick and her team, the job is often more than just a job. It can be emotional, and the work can be taxing. They view the remains as as their patients, as their care. They're in their care, and it is their job to, um, you know, get a final disposition for them. And whether that be with their families or in the um, so-called pauper's grave, if you will, here um, in the city where the medical examiner's office um, buries unclaimed remains. Um, either way, they, they they find it as their mission to get them identified, to get them named and identified and um, properly buried one way or the other. And so it, it is then up to the families to decide what the next step is going to be from there. And, and it's really, you know, medical examiner staff understand, having done this as long as they have, that some of these remains that belong to people that have been missing for so long, um, some of their families don't want the answer. Some of their families don't, you know, they're estranged. They have all kinds of history with their families. And so when they get that phone call, even though for the medical examiner staff, they're hoping for this sort of um, somewhat happy outcome. I mean, it's certainly the answer no family wants um, to the mystery of a missing loved one is that they have been found and that they are deceased. Um, but it's also, you know, some closure in the sense of getting an answer as to what happened to them. So the medical examiner's office really hopes for 
that sort of happy outcome, um, as happy as can be expected. That, you know, thank you for the answers. We're so happy to know. Here's what happened. But there's the flip side of it, where some families don't want the answers, um, don't want to be involved, and even say to them sometimes, you know what, I said goodbye to that person a long time ago. That person's been dead to me for a long time, um, and, and they want nothing to do with it. The, the families are, are, for the most part, very grateful uh, when we do contact them. And, you know, we explain to them up front that this isn't a, cannot usually be an overnight process, especially when DNA is involved or trying to go back and obtain records. Not everybody has dental records. Not everybody has x-rays. Um, so we're, each case has its own individual challenges. But when the, when the stars do align and we're able to make identifications, it's extremely rewarding um, for our staff that works tirelessly to get these individuals identified. I bet it's pretty emotional, too. It's very emotional. It's very emotional. Um, you make connections with the people that you're working for. It's definitely a team effort. A lot of times in the field of forensics, um, people get the idea that it's a one-woman, one-man show. It's not. It's a team effort. These cases are, are something they take very personally. Um, they keep them up at night. Um, they're just constantly thinking and thinking and thinking of ways that they could solve these cases um, because they very much want them to be either reunited with the family that they know is is missing them and looking for them and wondering what happened. Or at the very least, they want them to be identified because they are just human beings and they want to, to know that they have been identified, they have names, and they have been taken care of properly. Um, and so this is a very emotional issue for them. Um, and they stay with them too. I mean, asking um, them about some of the cases that they have been able to bring resolution to, you know, um, and they start rattling off stories like it happened yesterday. So they stay with them as well. A lot of our investigators here, myself included, we always have our finger on the pulse of what is going on in the media and social media, people that are reported missing. That way we have those individuals in the back of our mind should someone come into our office who's unidentified. So a particular case that I handled quite a few years ago, um, it was in the dead of winter, and it was a gentleman who was found outside in a um, burned-up garage. And there was not a way that this person was going to be able to be viewed. He could possibly be fingerprinted. Um, but he was wearing you know, pretty unique clothing. And because I have been kind of having my finger on the pulse of these missing persons, um, this individual's family had went to the media uh, pleading for help with trying to find him and had posted a picture on Facebook that was shared on the media of him in, in the same or similar unique clothing as the decedent. And in this particular case, she recalled seeing, um, first hearing about it on the radio, hearing this family pleading for help for their missing loved one. And then she went, as, she, as soon as she got to the office, she started um, searching for any other local media coverage with visuals that this family had pictures of this person. And sure enough, the picture that they gave the media was of this person wearing that same sweatshirt. So that gave me a tentative identification. It's not scientific, but it was tentative. It was a lead. It was a name so that we could reach out to that law enforcement agency where that young man had been reported missing. And we were able to um, 
have them act as a liaison between the medical examiner's office and the family. And we were able to have him fingerprinted and identified very quickly. She said, you know, something I'll never forget. Kelly Nicholson is chief investigator at the medical examiner's office, working alongside Tara Rick to identify bodies. It's a lot. It's hard to know that it's somebody's somebody and it's their loved one and they're here and we try to take care of them and do the best that we can and find out who they are and find out what happened to them. And I think that's, I think I speak for the majority of my team in saying that we're the voice for the decedents. We're trying to figure out what happened, what's their last story, so that they can get that out there. Um, And it's just sad to hear that there's all these missing people and then the unidentified people we have here and try to coordinate the two together to get that ending. So when there really is no, nothing, no DNA hits, no x-rays, no anything, then the whole case file, once it's completed, the doctor's done the exam, our investigators have combed through as much as they possibly can, then I will send everything to Tara and she will send it into NamUs and try and get hits that way. NamUs, that's the National Missing and Unidentified Person System a national database that's used to help identify some of thousands of bodies that are currently unidentified in morgues across the country. Statistics out there say that um, the remains of 4,400 people are found every year that are unidentified. But let's return to the male body discovered in the Mississippi River last year, a body that remains in the St. Louis City morgue. Investigators haven't said yet what might have caused his death, whether foul play was involved, But could those tattoos answer that first critical question? Who is this person? The only problem is that the medical examiner's office hasn't been able to release the images of the tattoos due to decomposition. And so what we did for our story was we enlisted the help of a local tattoo artist, and we were able to show him the pictures, and he was basically able to trace and draw the tattoos as best that he could Um, sort of taking some creative liberties as well to guess as best he could as to what the rest of the tattoos looked like that were illegible. Um, And so we were able then to reproduce those images and make them suitable for um, the airwaves and for public consumption. Me, I'm I'm a tattoo artist. How am I going to help with (laughs) crime or or identification? So it was just kind of very... um, off the wall. This is William Romberg, the St. Louis area tattoo artist brought in to look at images of the tattoos on the man's body. You've had some time to look at this image and research this image. And so what does this tattoo tell you potentially about this person or where this tattoo came from? Um, so, I mean, my, my average uh, project when I go to work with a client is I, I spend some time doing some research on their subject matter. I, I think the, the more informed about what I'm creating for a person, the better the overall product turns out to be. Um, so what I did is I ended up using Google to search out the word, you know, what we picked up from it was death before dishonor. That's kind of what we saw with the image. That was our our first clue. Um, so that's what I Google searched. I Google searched death before dishonor tattoos um, with a skull. And honestly, to be honest with you, I was really surprised and also kind of not surprised Um, that it was right there on the first page of Google, um, which is indicative of um, people going into a tattoo shop with an image. That's kind of what nowadays people do. And the artist, you know, reimagining that. Um, 
And so basically my framework for this design was already kind of given to me. And as far as the quality of the work goes, do you think this was something that he could have possibly gotten in prison, or do you think he went to a professional artist? Um, with the with the quality of the photo, um, it kind of tells me that it was professionally done um, in, in some sense. I guess knowing, knowing the story of what that had been through and the fact that it was still pretty legible as, as a tattoo, I could, I could read what, and, and understand what that tattoo was supposed to be about. Um, so that tells me that it was done with someone with some training, for sure, potentially. Um, it, it held up really nice, the black line work. And that's in tattooing. That's our bread and butter is that the, the black ink is the strong part of a tattoo. Is it a pretty common image? The, the idea of death before dishonor goes far back in tattoo history, for sure. It's a classic staple. The longevity of that meaning to, to, to people, especially in Western culture, uh, death before dishonor. We're talking ni- early 1900s. World, it's a classic World War One, World War Two military-style tattoo. This is a classic, like, kind of a bad boy tattoo to a degree. It's a tough tattoo. Romberg also takes a close look at the word mad, spelled M-A-D-D and offers his thoughts on what it could mean or represent. The, the mad, which was, you know, we could tell is M-A-D-D, so it could be with an I and be a maddie. So I think it's two children, potentially. Um, definitely they were just born in 2012. But um, so, yeah, definitely it seems like these are potential children, if anything, Zachary and Maddie. Um, usually in tattooing, when it comes to parents mm-hmm. or grandparents, we don't put their first names. So it's definitely indicative of children. So whoever this is definitely had a boy and a girl. Um, in my opinion, if you're going off the stereotypical name of Maddie and Zachary, um, and, and it seemed like uh, I caught a little bit of the image of these, these little circles. Um, yeah, what do you think that, those are? Um, pulling from that of my knowledge of tattooing and, and it, it potentially... Being black and gray, no color to this tattoo, um, it says something about there being a ribbon. So maybe this was multiple people, grandma, son, daughter. This was all of his family members right there on his arm. Family man, to a degree, representing his kids. But will Romberg's analysis lead investigators to an answer, an identity? KSDK in St. Louis recently aired the story about the man with the tattoos and for the first time made the images public. I did hear from the medical examiner's office the day after our story ran, and she said she had received several emails and phone calls that she needed to follow up on and that she would keep me posted that she basically got some new leads to track down. For now, it remains to be seen if the man's body or any of the seven bodies in the St. Louis morgue will be identified. This person may not be from the St. Louis area, but we're asking the public's help. If anyone recognizes these tattoos or may have information about this case, to please reach out to the St. Louis City Medical Examiner's Office. So that's where we are, and that's where we are on most of these cases. And now we wait. Hey, True Crime Chronicles listeners, Reed Redmond here. Will, such a fascinating story, again, from Christine Byers with KSDK. And I always think it's fascinating to hear from reporters like her where these stories come from. And in this case, it sounds like it was just her saying, hey, we don't always hear from the folks working behind the scenes at the medical examiner's office. Let's give them a call. And that idea spurred you know, this whole interesting, important story. We heard that there are seven unidentified people currently in the St. Louis morgue. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the other work that goes on there, how many cases they work on? 
Yeah, the St. Louis City Coroner investigates about 1,200 cases per year. So, you know, for a good-sized city like St. Louis, still a lot of cases that they deal with on an annual basis. And they investigate all uh, natural deaths, homicides, suicides, and accidents. Uh, also, uh, the death of a child or a younger person or a death of anyone in a public location is included in the coroner's records. On this podcast, we're so often looking at potentially the other side of stories like these missing persons cases where there's a family or there are investigators who have no idea what happened to a person. And you know, I was kind of moved thinking about how even in some of these missing persons cases where we might never actually know what happened to somebody, there, there could be people like Tara Rick and her team caring about that person after their death, even if they don't know who that person is. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting part of this whole story. And when Christine Byers first told me about it, that she had talked to the morgue and there were these bodies and there were in fact seven of them and they'd been around some of them since 2016. Uh, you know, we don't have data from cities of the same size across the country, but it would be a really interesting thing to go out there and find out what other morgues are dealing with in terms of unidentified bodies. And we do so many stories on this show where we mention or talk about the medical examiner, but it's often a very brief mention, right? I mean, it's part of the process and often the very first step in the process, as we talk about in this episode, where the body is identified. But that work is so important and elemental to any crime investigation. Yeah, it's it's such important work. And in a lot of cases, it sounds like it's essentially detective work, right? Yeah, and that's, again, like, you know, they... They go into their job every day and they're identifying bodies that are brought in. And it it strikes me just to think about that room where there are these seven bodies and that every day they are thinking about these bodies and the identification of them. And they, you know, they think about it when they go home, too, and how they can bring closure to a family and to a case. I also wanted to bring up, we heard Christine talk about having this local tattoo artist reproduce the images of the tattoos in the case of the unidentified man that was found by barge workers in St. Louis. I assume that those images, as well as more information about all seven of these unidentified individuals, can be found on the KSDK website? Yes, absolutely. You can go to ksdk.com and go to the search bar and type in morgue, and you will see her full investigation on this topic, well, along with images uh, and everything you know that we cover in this episode. One last thing I wanted to ask about, you know, if, if maybe there's something we can learn in all of this is... You know, if, God forbid, someone listening to this has a loved one go missing, what should they do? What information should they make sure to have ready for investigators? Yeah, you know, we've saved this for last, and it's actually maybe the most important aspect of this entire conversation is that if families think someone is missing, if you think someone is missing, it's really important to report that to your local police department and submit a DNA sample. So, you know, that way, if you're loved one died, investigators will have somewhere to start. And that's what we hear about, you know, from Christine. Tara Rick at the morgue says their phone rings at least every week. And there's a family member searching for uh, a loved one. And she'll say, well, have you reported it? And in a lot of cases, the family member will say, no, I haven't. So that's literally the first thing you need to do if, as you say, God forbid, if something like that were to happen. And it's also really important, Tara Rick points out, is to provide as many details as possible when you make the report. Of course, police would probably ask that. But make sure you talk about, obviously, physical description, height, weight, last known clothing, tattoos, 
any other scars or marks? Have they had surgery before? Implantable devices, we mentioned that in this story. And if they go to the dentist, where do they go to the dentist? So as much information as possible, because there are a lot of people who are looking for loved ones and they haven't actually made that report. So that's, that's really important. Read in the meantime, if people want to check out our daily podcast, where and how can they do that? All you got to do is search for The Daily Crime wherever it is you listen to True Crime Chronicles. That one is, it's co-hosted by me and Will. So if you get done with this show and you're looking for more, search for The Daily Crime. All right, for Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson along with Reed Redman. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story.